Burning Books with Eric Beck-Rubin. Hello and welcome to episode 24 of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are crap like the book that we're going to talk about today. Today, like I said, is not going to be about a good book. Though you wouldn't know it by the ball washing that the author has received on the cover. Masterfully realized, genuinely and deeply funny, elegant and measured, reads like Borges in the Black Forest. In fact, I'm tempted to say that this is one of the worst books I've read in a decade. Could be. The novel is Measuring the World. The author is Daniel Kalman. The translator is the hardworking Carol Brown Janeway, and the publication year of this disaster piece, 2006. To quote a famous piece of music and a much greater piece of art than the one under review, I hate you so much right now. Do I want to start on the blurbs? I mean, who wouldn't want to rail on the stupidity of two-sentence redactions? And who doesn't want to take a shot at journalists who write reviews specifically to be included on the front and back of soft covers? And this is not to mention those authors who write advanced praise for their chummy author friends. To those writers who write advanced praise, let me say, you are so lucky to have read this book while it was still in galley form. No, I don't think at all that you're a personal friend of the author. And even if you were, how could that possibly affect your view of this book? No, really, I am that gullible. Although in some senses I am that gullible, having been suckered into reading Measuring the World, in part because of the gushing two-sentence reviews on the front and back covers. But no, I'm not going to start on the blurbs. You may think I've already done that, but you'd be wrong. Instead, I want to start by looking at something that's possibly more nefarious than fatuous blurbing, as well as less discussed. What I want to talk about is the artless habit of front-loading a novel, and I promise this is relevant to the book. By front-loading a novel, I mean putting the climax of the novel at the very beginning, in the first chapter, certainly, and possibly in the first paragraphs. Not to sound ancient or anything, but in Aristotle's time, a story had a beginning, middle, and end, and it proceeded from beginning to middle to end. Today, you still have beginning, middle, and end, but the order goes as follows. Start close to the end, then go back to the beginning, then to the middle, then back to that part that was almost the end, which we read about in the beginning, then arrive at the end. Now, let me be clear, I have no problem screwing with linearity. We're modern, we're postmodern, we're whatever. But front-loading is not screwing with linearity. It's catering to the reduced attention span, the reduced imagination, and the reduced intelligence, perceived or real, of the reader. The logic, I guess, is that the book has to get to the meat right away, or else the reader will turn on their computer and never come back to literature again. Thing is, if climaxing at the beginning of an activity doesn't seem like a good idea in other aspects of human endeavor, why is it regarded as the best way to write a novel? And if we were to call the structural technique what it actually is, premature ejaculation, would it ease any number of writers off this insufferable bandwagon? To all this, the fans of Measuring the World, whoever these people are, will respond that no one dies in the first five pages of the novel, nobody even suffers a paper cut. 
In fact, the most dramatic thing that occurs is that the greatest mathematician of the 18th century, Carl Friedrich Gauss, resists getting into his carriage for the long trip to meet the greatest naturalist of the 18th century, Alexander von Humboldt. And that's true. But it's also the point. This meeting between Gauss and Humboldt is in fact the culmination, the climax of the entire novel, and what should be the great reveal, an encounter of superior opposing minds, each grappling in his own way with the question of how to apprehend the world, this meeting at the top of the mountain is given away too cheaply. The result is that, instead of the next 200 pages of this novel being a build-up, one chapter about Gauss, one chapter about Humboldt, towards this unlikely summit, those 200 pages, in fact, become an exercise in exposition, in filling in the background, in being an elaborate, tedious setup. When Kurt Vonnegut advised his writing students to begin a story as close as possible to the end of the story, he did not mean begin close to the end, then back way the fuck up. He meant begin close to the end and then keep going. But when you've basically gotten to the end of the story, as Kalman has in chapter one, there's nowhere further to go. And the reader knows it. In thinking about the parallel storyline structure of measuring the world and the unfortunate decision to give away the ending of this story at the beginning, that is the fact that the two stories will eventually meet, I'm brought back to the work of another far superior author, Mario Vargas Llosa. In many of Vargas Llosa's novels, like The Amazing Aunt Julia and the Scriptwriter, which I know I've mentioned before, as well as The Storyteller and the truly terrifying Death in the Andes, Vargas Llosa keeps his parallel storylines separate. Where Kalman tells the reader right away where his story is going, Vargas Llosa does not. What his stories do is ask readers to join the parallel paths themselves, to make sense of them and see what is produced. One is a form of spoon-feeding, that's Kalman. The other is an invitation to imagination, that's Vargas Llosa. Spoon-feeding isn't bad now and then, I can admit that, but after the third or fourth airplane of food is being forced into your facial orifice, you may find it demeaning. It's no different in measuring the world, where the author straps the reader's face to a periscope, then points the periscope in this direction and that, telling the reader exactly what he or she must see and understand in reading the book. You see, the author tells us again and again, until our neck hurts, I will be comparing and contrasting two views of grasping the unfolding world, which is what I actually mean with my clever title. One character will represent an abstract view of our planet, the other a real view. One will be a cold mathematician, never leaving his tower if he can help it. The other is a man who, once he enters the jungles of South America, will never look back. And all the way through this delightful journey, you, reader, will be invited to measure one against the other. Yeah, bud, I get it, but thanks for telling me, and for denying me the pleasure of, you know, thinking for myself. And thank you most of all for doing all this before this story has barely even begun. If the only crime of this author in this novel were to give away the story in the first chapter, that would be excusable. Everyone else is doing it may not be a defense for the police, but it can be a defense for an author, especially in a world of publishers that want to keep producing successful formulas rather than novels, which, as I can't say enough times, are about newness. Novels are meant to be anti-formulaic. But like I said, the novelist needs a publisher. The publisher is deathly afraid of short attention spans, so we get books where the ends come at the beginning. Fine. And like I said, that's not the only crime of this book. 
What seemed to me worse, many times worse, was the style of this novel. Cloying? Can I say cloying? Have I used the term infantile already? Can I use it again? As I was making my way through this novel, the words restoration comedy kept popping up in my head. And if you've ever suffered through one, you'll know that restoration comedy is by no means a compliment. Mannered speech, torturous setups followed by belabored punchlines, polite and knowing laughter. (laughs) These are all the hallmarks that make the restoration comedy style of measuring the world particularly nauseating. Take this example from a scene towards the beginning of the book where Gauss and Humboldt have just met. Humboldt is introducing his friend, Daguerre, who has planned to photograph the encounter, except all is not going smoothly. A suspicious policeman has appeared and wants to break up the party. A policeman entered the courtyard and asked what was going on. Later, his tumult, his lips pressed together. This was an unauthorized gathering, said the policeman. Either everyone went their separate ways, or this would become police business. He was a chamberlain, Humboldt hissed. Excuse me? The policeman bent forward. Chamberlain, Humboldt's secretary repeated, member of the court. Daguerre ordered the policeman to get out of the picture. Frowning, the policeman stepped back. First of all, anyone could claim the same thing. And secondly, the ban on gatherings applied to everyone. And that one there, pointing to Eugen, was clearly a student, which made it particularly ticklish. If he didn't immediately make himself scarce, said the secretary, he would find himself in difficulties he couldn't even begin to imagine. This was no way to address an officer, said the policeman nervously. He would give them five minutes. Gauss groaned and pulled himself free. Oh no, cried Humboldt. Now the moment had been lost forever. Just like all the others, said Gauss calmly. Like all the others. Are you, are you okay? Can we continue? Was it the use of the expression particularly ticklish, or the wise repetition of just like all the others that caused you to bust a gut. The thing is, in measuring the world, everyone, everyone, every single character sounds just like this. Mathematical genius, avid adventurer, Gauss's no good excuse for a son, Eugen, Humboldt's rascal assistant, Bonplan, the priests and aboriginals encountered on their travels, minor Russian aristocracy, they all speak and think like ventriloquists' dummies. I once heard the expression one-noted to describe an overcooked piece of meat, and it meant that there was no depth to the taste. This book, this book is one-noted, and only barely hits that one note. It may seem at first incidental that, though this book is full of dialogue, there are no quotation marks, but to me that was telling. There was only one voice in this entire thing, that of a deeply self-satisfied author. Now, if this novel had been crap all the way through, that'd be easy. Throw it out the window, the way Humboldt throws out the daguerreotype in that earlier scene. But, and this is what makes the novel truly diabolical, measuring the world is not unvarnished junk. Unfortunately, there are, now and then, flecks of sparkle. I'd say Kelman is at his best when he lets his knowledge of the characters' discoveries and actions show, but best is probably not a word I want to use in the same sentence as Kelman. He's good in these moments, though. So, take for example his description of Alexander von Humboldt's education, which was gained alongside his older brother, the one after whom the great Berlin University is named. Fifteen highly paid experts came to lecture them at university level. For the younger brother, it was chemistry, physics, and mathematics. For the elder, it was languages and literature, 
and for both of them it was Greek, Latin, and philosophy. 12 hours a day, 7 days a week, with no time off and no holidays. The younger brother, Alexander, was taciturn and frail. He needed encouragement in everything he did, and his marks were mediocre. When left to his own devices, he wandered in the woods, collecting beetles and ordering them in categories he made up himself. At the age of nine, he followed Benjamin Franklin's design and built a lightning conductor and attached it to the roof of the castle they lived in near the capital. A little later, we have a description of Humboldt's traveling equipment. Humboldt journeyed on to Salzburg, where he acquired himself the most expensive arsenal of measuring instruments ever to be possessed by one person. Two barometers for air pressure, a hypsometer to measure the boiling point of water, a theodolite for measuring land, a sextant with an artificial horizon, a foldable pocket sextant, a dipping magnetic needle to establish the force of the Earth's magnetism, a hydrometer for the relative dampness in the air, a udiometer for measuring the oxygen levels in the air, a Leyden jar to capture electrical charges, and a cyanometer to measure the blue of the sky. Plus, two of these pricelessly costly clocks which recently had started to be produced in Paris. They no longer needed a pendulum, but marked the seconds invisibly with regularly moving springs inside. When handled properly, they kept a Paris time, and if one determined the length of the sun above the horizon and then consulted tables, they made it possible to fix the degree of longitude. I found the factual elements of this novel genuinely interesting. I like learning as I read. I also enjoyed the occasions when Gauss looked into a future he longed to inhabit, but knew he would never see. These reveries are based on the premise that geniuses can see into the future. And Kalman puts the premise to good use in the following passage, where Gauss is suffering physical pain and knows that curare, a South American plant that Humboldt has just picked up on his voyage, will one day provide relief. One day, but not yet. He would have given his soul to live a hundred years later, when there would be medications for pain and doctors who deserve the name. All that was necessary was to numb the nerves in the right spot. The best thing would be little doses of poison. Curare needed to be researched better. There was a flask of it in the Institute of Chemistry. He would go and have a look. The delight of this book is also hinted at in this passage. Although Gus and Humboldt suffered limitations of mobility and insufficient financing for their great endeavors, they embodied one of the great spirits of their time, the universal, almost promiscuous nature of human curiosity. So what if I were a mathematician? I could also be a chemist, a musician, a philosopher. These pursuits are not mutually exclusive as they seem to be today. Rather, they're all part of the same drive to discover the shape of our world. Unfortunately, the world measured in Daniel Kalman's novel is a small one. In chapter after chapter, as the reader follows Gauss, then Humboldt, then Gauss, then Humboldt, the tone doesn't really change and neither does the content. The pace of writing is sometimes frantic, or maybe slapstick is a better word, and like a Laurel and Hardy comedy, it circles around the same gags. Gauss thinks his son is an idiot and strikes him in the head. Humboldt and his sidekick Bonplan get into trouble with the locals, although Humboldt, the world explorer, is too unworldly to notice it. And repeat, and again, all in a tone that suggests everything is so fucking jolly. I will conclude by saying that I own Fame, another novel by Daniel Kalman, and I don't know what to do with it. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Marguerite Yourcenar's amazing novel, The Memoirs of Hadrian. 
Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, just spelled the way it sounds, and following the link to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Hakan Ozgon for the music. <laughs> to Peter Cox, executive producer of the program. Okay, I don't even know what this word is. Pujit? I've never heard of that before. What the hell is that? A Pujit? It's a Peugeot. And as always, go Jays. This is Roger Scruton. You can hear me on The Gary Bushel Show here on our wonderful Radio Litopia. Here comes the future.